We are at Matthew 10, 34 to 39 in part six of our series, I did not come to bring peace on the earth. 1034. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life shall lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake shall find it. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we ask you to help us to understand this truth. This truth by the mouth of your one and only Son, the only begotten Son of God, our Lord and Savior. May we take these words to heart, may we take them very seriously, and understand who you truly are, who he truly is. May you give us faith, may you increase our faith to believe in whatever your holy word teaches. When we ask in the name of your Son, Amen. If we were to have Jesus Christ living today, it would be guaranteed that the world would hate him. And it would be guaranteed, actually, that the churches that profess his name would also hate him. We may say the description or the words of Christ that we have in our gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John contain many words which we might say, portray the Jesus you hate, or the Jesus common Christianity hates. If the Lord from heaven were to come and preach again, even in our generation, or any nation of the world, any place in the world, if he were to come today and preach these words, the words we just read, then people would absolutely despise him. They would hate him. And there would be, in churches that have a thousand people, perhaps only nine left. Or churches of a hundred people, perhaps only two left. After they heard Jesus speak words like this to them. That's how it would be. This is the Jesus people hate. Yes, they absolutely despise and hate the true Jesus Christ. They are following another Jesus, a different spirit, and a different gospel. 2 Corinthians 11, 3-4. They are following an idol. They are not following the true Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, as explained in the Bible. Some of these people say that they believe only in the New Testament. Well, if that's the case, then why is it that they ignore this passage and other such passages such as this passage that we will study in our New Testament undertaking here? Why is it that they ignore them? They don't even know about these passages and they are very astounded if ever they read these passages. What in the world did Jesus mean? This is not the Jesus that I was taught when I was growing up in my church And my parents, they didn't teach me this Jesus. Well, it's right here in the New Testament. The New Testament you people claim to believe. Those who say they only follow the New Testament. What about those who say 
They only follow the red letters. They only follow the red letters, the red letter editions of the Bible. They say, we are red letter Christians. Yes, you can find some people like that. Well, even among them, they refuse to give heed to these words, these red letter words. That is, whenever Jesus speaks in the New Testament, some editions of the Bible will print them in red letters so to help us identify who the speaker is. And as a convention, that's okay. But what has happened is that some people have taken that convention way of printing the Bible in a different color, the words of Christ. They have taken it to mean that's all that they believe. But these people are massive hypocrites when they say that because they don't believe, they don't act in accordance with these words. One such is a pastor named... um, and was a pastor named Tony Campolo, a Baptist pastor, yes, a Tony Campolo, Baptist pastor who believed in the red letters. And yet he thinks homosexuals go to heaven and you can be a Christian homosexual. You can be a feminist and a Christian, a Christian feminist. And there are many such doctrines that he taught without shame. Red letter Christian. And people follow people like him, pastors like him. But do we really believe in all of the words of Jesus Christ? Jesus said, whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this sinful and adulterous generation, the Son of Man shall be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Mark eight thirty-eight. We cannot be ashamed of his words even. So what do his words contain? His words contain in our series words that fight against the closest of relations we have, those in the members of our own household. This is what people hate. They think that Jesus came only to bring love and peace and unity and joy and hope for everybody as long as they raise their hand and say, I'm a Christian. But that's not the case. He came to bring peace and reconciliation between sinful men and God. And we do have that reconciliation and peace. We also have reconciliation and peace with one another when we truly believe that same gospel and are like-mindedly following his word by his spirit that does promote peace and harmony. But he did not come to bring peace and guarantee it in every relationship, even in the most closest of all relationships within one's own family. He did not come to guarantee it. That's what he's saying here. Our allegiance, our first and foremost obedience, our attention, our devotion should be to God himself. Love him with all our heart and soul and might. That's what we should be about. And so when one, one of our family members, says something, expects something, does something contrary to the holy word of Christ, it is up to us to say, we will follow the Lord Jesus Christ and not what you're saying, not what you're doing. Your expectation is earthly, natural, and demonic. It's a worldly, it's devilish, and it's carnal. We're not going to do it. James 3, 13 to 18. 
earthly, natural, demonic. It's not right. We are going to submit ourselves to the word of God. We ought to obey God rather than men. Acts 5, 29. And what prompted this series had to do with the previous Christmas season. Christmas season, when it is when there is heightened tension between family members as to what to do. What to do about Christmas, how to celebrate, where to celebrate, whether to celebrate, on and on and on. But that's not the only time of year when those kinds of conflicts arise. They often arise during holidays or celebrations. They often arise at Christmas and at other seasons of the year. But what are we going to do? How will we look at these issues? What will we do? What will we do when a family member says, I do not want you to go to church. I do not want you to be honest. I do not want you to do this or that. And it is contrary to his word. What are we supposed to do? We are supposed to follow the Lord and reject whatever anybody else says. Let's be that way. And let's see that Jesus expected us to be that way. This is the true Jesus, what we are about to study. Not only Jesus, but his apostles who reflect his teaching. But primarily in our study today, it will be the Lord Jesus, his very own words. We just read his very own words in Matthew 10, 34 to 39. And remember, he also said similar words in Matthew 10, 10, 21. And brother will deliver up brother to death, and a father his child, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. He's anticipating, for the sake of righteousness, one's own family putting another family member to death. Let's move on to chapter 12 of Matthew. Matthew 12, 46. Matthew 12, 46. This passage has its parallels in Mark and Luke. Matthew 12 and verse 46. 46 to the end, 50. While he was still speaking to the multitudes, behold, his mother and his brothers were standing outside seeking to speak to him. And someone said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to you. But he answered the one who was telling him and said, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers. For whoever shall do the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. Did Jesus sin here? Someone in the crowd told him his mother and brothers arrived and they want to speak to him. But Jesus doesn't give them immediate attention. Was he being harsh? Was he being rude and crude against his mother and brothers? No. No one can and should accuse him of sin. But he used it as an opportunity to remind the people that what is most important is not the physical, familial relationship. What is most important is, 
Whoever shall do the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. Whoever does the will of God is a true mother, a true brother, a true sister. That should be first and foremost on our mind. Mark chapter 3, Mark 3, verse 20. Mark three twenty to 35. 320. And he came home, and the multitude gathered again to such an extent that they could not even eat a meal. And when his own people heard of this, they went out to take custody of him, for they were saying, He has lost his senses. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and he casts out the demons by the ruler of the demons. And he called them to himself and began speaking to them in parables. How can Satan cast out Satan? And if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but he is finished. But no one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his property unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Because they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers arrived. And standing outside, they sent word to him and called him. And a multitude was sitting around him, and they said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are looking outside looking for you. And answering them, he said, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about on those who were sitting around him, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. The last paragraph is a parallel to Matthew 12. What do we have here, though, that is different or in addition? It says in verses 20 to 20, who came searching for him? Verse 20, and why? And he came home. And the multitude gathered again to such an extent that they could not even eat a meal. And when his own people heard of this, they went out to take custody of him, for they were saying he has lost his senses. It says his own people heard of what he was doing in the hometown, and they were saying, He has lost his senses. Jesus, his own people were saying, his own relatives were saying, Jesus has lost his senses. He's insane. He's a madman. He's a crazy man. He's a kook. That's what his own relatives were saying about him. And what did they want to do? It says in verse 21, they went out to take custody of him. They went out to take custody of him. They went to arrest him, to stop him, to drag him away, to keep him at home and try to put some sense into him. Their nonsense 
their nonsense is interpreting his sense as nonsense and they want to put sense into him. He has lost his senses. Who are they who would deign to do this? Who are they? Look at verse 31. Verse 31, who were these relatives? And his mother and his brother arrived. His own people, 21, Verse 31, his mother and his brothers arrived. They embarked on the journey, 21. They arrived to their destination, 31. They were the ones thinking he was crazy. No, he was not crazy. They were crazy. He was not insane. They were insane. He did not lose his senses. They lost their senses. This is in Jesus' own family. Mark chapter 6. Mark 6, 1 to 6. Mark 6, verse 1. And he went out from there, and he came into his hometown. And his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue, and the many listeners were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things, and what is this wisdom given to him, and such miracles as these performed by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. They took offense at him. At him, And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his own relatives and in his own household. And he could do no miracle there except that he laid his hands upon a few sick people and healed them. And he wondered at their unbelief. And he was going around the villages teaching. He is, verse 1, in his hometown. In his hometown, the locals are aware of who he is, verse 3. They know he is a carpenter. They know his profession. They know his mother. They know his brothers and sisters. They know them. They're all locals. They know each other. But they are amazed in unbelief. They have unbelief in verse 2. Where did this man get these things, this wisdom, such miracles? Where did he get all of this? This is a lowly man. This man is on the lowest rung of of the society. He's a lowlife. He cleans. He collects garbage. He has to use his hands and make things out of wood, and then clean up the mess. Masters usually don't do that. Kings don't usually do that. Politicians don't usually do that. It is the common man that does that. And that's what they're saying here. How could a common man, a carpenter, whose family we know, how could it be a known common man with these abilities and wisdom, how could he be of any importance? Why should we listen to him? 
They took offense at him. Verse 3. When they're identifying his family, they are taking offense at that. These days, people will only listen to you if you have a lot of money, if you have a position of great respect, whether in the university or in politics or even in a denomination. People will only listen to you if you have a position of authority or money. And also, if you are greatly educated. If you have a great education, a high education, especially from an Ivy League East Coast University, oh yes, then they'll respect you. And fourthly, they'll respect you if you have a large following. If you are very popular, if, especially in church, if your church has hundreds of people, thousands of people, tens of thousands of people, and you have professed, falsely, but if you have professed, I have saved thousands of people, thousands and ten thousands of people, and they've also been baptized. Look, then they will respect you. But they did not respect Christ, even though they knew him. They had personal interaction with him and his family. And Jesus says, this is the common truth. Verse 4 does not only apply to Jesus. It does not only apply to the the apostles or the prophets of the Old Testament. Verse 4 also applies to you and me. It applies to you and me. That a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his own relatives and in his own household. That is, when the prophet speaks the word of truth, when he speaks the word of Christ, when the prophet speaks that which is in the Bible to his hometown, to his relatives, to his own household, what will they do? They will dishonor him. They'll laugh at him. They'll ridicule him. They'll taunt him. Yes, they'll spit at his face. They'll threaten, to, they'll threaten violence. They'll walk away. They'll start quarreling. They'll start false accusations. You think you're right about everything? That's what they will do. They won't listen. There's no honor. So what did Jesus do in response? They didn't believe in him, so Jesus does not believe in them. Verses 5 and 6. He didn't do many miracles there because of their unbelief. And he wondered at their unbelief. 6, 6. They were astonished, verse 2. He was wondering in verse 6 against them. And that's the way it will be for us. It will be this way because they will have every reason, every good reason to believe, but they will refuse to do so. Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. Our context starts in Luke 4, 16. 4, 16 to 21 introduces the passage. Luke 4, 16 to 21. That is, Jesus is in Nazareth. He is in the synagogue. He reads the prophet Isaiah and says in verse 21, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And everyone is fixing his gaze upon Christ in the synagogue. 
So everyone initially is amazed. They are filled with wonder, astonished, astounded that such a man would stand up and say such things. But it quickly changes from 22 to 30. Remember, it's his own hometown. People who know him. Verse 22. Here's how the change occurs. Right there in verse 22. And all were speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. That's on the positive side. But it quickly changes. Notice. And they were saying, Is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, No doubt you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. What we heard was done at Capernaum. Do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. But I say to you, in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the sky was shut up for three years and six months, when a great famine came over all the land, and yet Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. And all in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things, and they rose up and cast him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went his way. They first initially, briefly said well of him. They were speaking well of him, and wondering at his gracious words, verse 22. Initially, yes, but finally and fully, no, because they were reminded, is this not Joseph's son? And as we read more fully in Mark chapter 6, 1 to 6, here too, they're challenging him with miracles, and Jesus says in return, No prophet is welcome in his hometown, verse 24. And what do uh, they hear from him? They hear him say, God favored Gentiles through Elijah and Elisha instead of you Jews, my own countrymen. Why did God disfavor my own countrymen in the days of the true prophets Elijah and Elisha and favor the Gentiles. Because his own countrymen would not believe in Christ. They didn't believe in Christ in the days of Elijah and, Nam, uh, Elijah and Elisha, nor did they believe in Christ when he came on the earth in his incarnation. And that made them full of murderous rage. The rage is in verse 28 And the murder is in verse 29. Murderous rage, murderous anger. They wanted to kill him for saying such a thing. Why did it not humble them? He gave them two pieces of evidence. They could not deny that Elijah helped a widow and Naaman helped a leper. I mean, uh, Elisha helped a leper named Naaman. They could not deny that. He had two pieces of evidence by the mouth of two or three witnesses. Every fact is to be confirmed. They should have repented. But instead of repenting, they have 
murderous hostility against Christ in his own hometown. Chapter 8, Luke 8, 8 and verse 19. Luke 8, 19. Luke 8, 19, which has its parallel in the verses we already read in Matthew 12 and Mark 3. Luke 8, 19 to 21. And his mother came to him and his brothers also, and they were unable to get to him because of the crowd. And it was reported to him, your mother and your brothers are standing outside wishing to see you. But he answered and said to them, my mother and my brothers are these who hear the word of God and do it. The expression here is more expansive than in Matthew and Mark. The expression here is those who hear the word of God and do it. In Matthew and Mark, it was whoever does the will of God. So how do we know the will of God? By the word of God. And whenever we know the will of God by the word of God, we must do it. Luke 9, Luke 9, 57. Luke 9, 57 to 62. This passage happens to be one that in the past uh, few several years, one pastor, he preached it twice, and both times he preached it, over, and there was a span of time between preaching it both ways. In his sermon, he twice intimated, twice implied, not openly and overtly, but implied or intimated that this was excessive and sinful. What Jesus does here says here is excessive and sinful. Though he didn't say excessive and sinful, if you hear him correctly and hear the way he said it, that's what he actually meant. I guarantee you, if we were to have men approach Christ today this way, or men approach pastors or some Christian preaching the gospel this way, and we were to say these words, anybody who would hear about it, you know what they would say? You are excessive and sinful. You are harsh. That is wrong. That's not in love. Let's see. Luke nine fifty seven. And as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And he said to another, Follow me. But he said, Permit me first to go and bury my father. But he said to him, Allow the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. And another also said, I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. But Jesus said to him, No one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. The first man 
claims he will follow Christ wherever he goes. Lots of people will say that. Whatever you tell me to do, wherever I should go, I will do it. But then in the second and third examples, we have family relations brought up. Family relations. And in our age, where family-first theology is very much promoted, family-first theology, which is actually idolatry, family-first, people use family for every kind of excuse. Family sickness, family presence, family absence, family strife, family, 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 family birthday, family holiday, family vacation, family reunion, wedding anniversary. They use family for all kinds of excuses. Family first, they think. And we're supposed to, we're supposed to agree to that. We're supposed to say, you're right. Of course, it's your wife. You should celebrate your anniversary. Go ahead and do that. And ignore God. Such as spending a night in the hotel on Saturday, Saturday night, enjoying Saturday and Sunday, spending it in a hotel Saturday night, and then ditching church all day Sunday on the Lord's Day. Or family is in town, so I need to skip church because they're not believers. So I need to skip church. After all, I need to love them. They came to see me, so I should love them and skip church. It's on and on. There are so many examples like this. Family first is not taught in the Bible. God first is taught in the Bible. And that's what he's illustrating in 59 to 62. And he said to another, follow me. But he said, Permit me first to go and bury my father. But he said to him, allow the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. Jesus knew this man had a lame excuse. He knew that. He knew the man didn't really desire to follow him, but wanted to say, first, permit me first. There's family first. The man believes in family first. First, to go and bury my father. But Jesus rejects family first right here in verses 59 and 60. He says, allow the dead to bury their own dead. Allow the spiritually dead to bury the physically dead and spiritually. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. You're using this as an excuse. Not because you really had a sudden death of your father and you need to go and bury him, but you truly do want to follow me. Jesus knew it was an excuse. So he hits the excuse right on the head without any leeway. He doesn't say, I understand your pain. I understand your sorrow. Yes, I'll give you three days. I'll give you five days. I'll give you seven days. He doesn't say anything like that. He knows there's an excuse, even though a death has occurred. Most likely the death did occur. But the death was an excuse. That's the main issue. The death of the father was an excuse to ditch Christ. The second example where family first is rejected. 61. And another also said, I will follow you, Lord, but first. Look at there. First. First permit me to say goodbye to those at home. Isn't it good 
You have to give your greetings to your relatives. You have to give your farewell to your relatives. That's the kind and courteous, normal thing to do, right? And then when you're gone, to make sure you send letters back home, correct? Isn't that the right thing to do? That's the normal thing to do. That's what everyone normally does, not just Christians, but people worldwide do things like that. There's a greeting, there's a farewell, and then there is constant communication when you are separated from one another, right? That's the normal thing to do. But this is an excuse. Family first excuse. I have to first go say goodbye. I have to say goodbye, farewell to those at home. Jesus knows that it is an excuse. After all, it's just very short. Just let me say goodbye, give them hugs and kisses, and, and pray with them, read the Bible with them, and then go. Let me do that. It won't take long, Jesus. He knows the excuse, so he gives no room for it. He threatens, he threatens this man, reminiscent of Lot's wife. He threatens this man, reminiscent of Lot's wife. But Jesus said to him, no one after putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Reminiscent of Lot's wife, because in Genesis 19.17 and 19.26, Lot's wife looked back and became a pillar of salt. Instantly destroyed and punished for looking back. Luke 10. Luke 10, 38 to 42. Luke 10, 38 to 42. We have this incident of Jesus at the house of Martha and Mary. Luke 10, 38. Now, as they were traveling along, he entered a certain village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. And she had a sister called Mary, who, moreover, was listening to the Lord's word, seated at his feet. But Martha was distracted with all her preparations, and she came up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? Then tell her to help me. But the Lord answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, You are worried and bothered about so many things, but only a few things are necessary, really only one. For Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken away from her. Our Lord is at this house, and he is teaching the word. It says the Lord's word, verse 39. Mary chooses to hear the Lord's word and not to be worried and bothered about so many things. Martha challenges Christ. She is distracted with all her preparations. She is worried and bothered about so many things. She is practicing hospitality, but not with the right attitude. And in fact, she is accusing her sister Mary and even the Lord himself of sinning. Who's sinning here, though? Everybody can't be right. There's a conflict. So who's right and who's wrong? Martha is wrong. She is in sin. Mary is not in sin. Mary is her sister. And Jesus is not in sin. And Jesus points it out to her because Martha brings up the subject, Lord, do you not care? So there's Jesus' sin. He doesn't care. 
that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone. So Mary is sinning by not helping Martha. No, who is sinning? And Mary, what has she done? Martha is sinning. Mary is not sinning. And Mary could have easily been persuaded and tugged and yanked by Martha away from the Lord's word, right? Whether initially or right in the middle of it. Martha could have said, or Martha, by her actions, rushing here and there from one place to the next in the house or in the kitchen, making the preparations, Mary could have been distracted by that and then said, Lord, I love what I'm hearing, but I need to go help Martha. And then sin against Christ. Do you see how Mary had to choose who's doing the right thing and who's doing the wrong thing? And she did the right by following the Lord. Luke eleven twenty seven. Luke eleven twenty seven to twenty eight. Another occasion. Eleven twenty seven for his family to be mentioned. And it came about while he said these things, one of the women in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. But he said, on the contrary, blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. One more time. She is blessing Jesus' mother, but Jesus puts it in perspective. Just the physical part is not, should not be the focus. The spiritual part should be the focus. On the contrary, he rejects what she says. On the contrary, blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. Luke 12, Luke 12, 49. Luke 12, 49 to 53. Luke 12, 49. I have come to cast fire upon the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to undergo, and how distressed I am until it is accomplished. Do you suppose that I came to, bring, to grant peace on earth? I tell you no, but rather division. For from now on, five members in one household will be divided, three against two and two against three, and they will be divided. Father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Christ came to cast a fire on the earth. Cast a fire on the earth and undergo a baptism. And he is distressed until that baptism occurs. 49 and 50. Why is he saying this? He's saying it in relation to our own households, our own family members. 51, do you suppose that I came to grant peace on earth? I tell you no, but rather division. This is a parallel to Matthew 10, 34 to 39. People think Jesus came to bring peace, to guarantee peace among the members of our own household. They think that. We want that. 
But there's no guarantee for that. He says, he did not come for that. You have a false supposition. Do you suppose that I came to grant peace on earth? Are you supposing that? Then that's a false supposition. I tell you no, but rather division. I came for there to be a separation or a division. Five members in one household will be divided. Three against two and two against three. They will be divided. He says it again. Father against son. Son against father. Mother against daughter. Daughter against mother. mother Mother-in-law against daughter-in-law. And daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. He came to do it because our immediate family, those who are our acquaintances, our friends, our lovers, will end up hating us for the sake of Christ. Luke 14. Luke 14. Luke 14, 15 to 24. Luke 14, 15 to 24. And see what we find stated in verse 20. Luke 14, verse 20. We begin at 15. And when one of those who were reclining at table with him heard this, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A certain man was giving a big dinner, and he invited many. And at the dinner hour, he sent his slaves to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is ready now. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first one said to him, I have bought a piece of land, and I need to go out and look at it. Please consider me excused. And another one said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I am going to try them out. Please consider me excused. And another one said, I have married a wife. And for that reason, I cannot come. And the slave came back and reported this to his master. Then the head of the household became angry and said to his slave, Go out at once into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in here the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the slave said, Master, what you have commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to him, to the slave, go out into the highways and along the hedges and compel them to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste of my dinner. This is a big dinner. And the host, the master, he has invited many. Who wouldn't want to go to a big dinner? A banquet, a feast is a good place to be. Everybody's happy. Everybody's enjoying good food. Right? And this is a picture of heaven because he's talking about the kingdom of God, verse 15, that many are invited to go to heaven by the preaching of the gospel, but they will make excuses. And look at the family first excuse, verse 20. And another one said, I have married a wife, and for that reason I cannot come. My wife prevents me from coming to the big dinner. My wife is the reason. And who's supposed to, or who would dare to contradict that? Normally people don't contradict that. If my wife, if I married my wife, my wife won't like it, then I can't do it contrary to my wife. But here, he's using his wife as an excuse not to enter the kingdom of God, 
to enjoy the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's not all. 14, 25, 14, 25 to 35, 14, 25. Now, great multitudes were going along with him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to... Complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and take counsel whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000. Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks terms of peace. So therefore, no one of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Therefore, salt is good. But if even salt has become tasteless, with what will it be seasoned? It is useless either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus says this to the great multitudes. This is like a church of a thousand, five thousand, ten thousand. He's saying it to the multitudes. Does that kind of pastor ever say this to his multitude? If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Does he ever say that? That you must be a hater? a hater of your own family members in the sense that we must loathe or hate, despise any sin that crops up in them and even us. Look at that. It says, even his own life. Even hate our own life, the sin in our own life. If we don't hate ourselves and others because of their sin, And once we hate them, follow Christ. Love Christ. Follow His word. Follow His will. If we don't make that distinction, He says that we cannot be His disciple. We cannot be His disciple. And in the true preaching of the gospel, this has to be brought up. Why so? Because Jesus illustrates with two examples that we must count the cost. And if we don't count the cost, we're going to end up being ridiculed for being so foolish. How were we so foolish that we could not understand if we do this, then that will happen? How could we not know that? Only if the gospel wasn't truly preached and believed. Then we act as fools. So therefore, no one of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Verse 33, even the possessions, meaning our own family members. And if we're not good salt, tasty salt, if we are tasteless, tasteless salt, we're no value. No value. Only 
only for the manure pile, nothing else. It's, I mean, it's not even useful for soil or the manure pile. You can't do anything with it. You just have to get rid of it, out of sight, and don't use it. Chapter 15. Chapter 15, verses 11 to 32. Luke actually, according to commentators, he emphasizes certain things. And one of them is family relations on the positive side. From chapter 1, for example, 16 and 17, that John the Baptist ministry was meant to turn the hearts of the children back to the fathers, like that, to bring unification. That is one of his emphases. Another one of his emphases is mentioning women and wives. The book of Luke and even in the book of Acts. To mention examples of godly women, godly wives. But also, he mentions that which is contrary, because he's showing by many examples, this is the way of a godly man, this is the way of a godly woman, and then on the contrary, this is the way of an ungodly man, this is the way of an ungodly woman. He does this many times. That's why we have these so many examples just here in the book of Luke, the negative ones here we're studying in the book of Luke, because these are the passages everybody ignores or misinterprets. 15.11, and he said, a certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me, and he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country, and there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be in need. And he went and attached himself to one of the citizens of that country. And he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he was longing to fill his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger? I will get up and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. And he got up and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. And bring the fattened calf, kill it, and let us eat and be merry. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to be merry. Now his older son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. And he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things might be. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he became angry and was not willing to go in. And his father came out and began entreating him. But he answered and said to his father, Look, for so many years I have been serving you, and I have never neglected a command of yours. And yet you have never given me a young goat that I might be merry with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured 
your wealth with harlots. You killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, My child, you have always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to be merry and rejoice, for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live, and was lost and has been found. Father and two sons. Throughout this, the father is acting righteously, behaving correctly. He is an example of God. The father is. He lets the son have his inheritance and go away. Then when the son returns, he sees him, has compassion on him, embraces him, hears his words, which, which he said in verse 21, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and in your sight I am no longer worthy to be called your son. That would be a, an expression of repentance. He understands what he has done, and so the father understands the wayward sons, now repentant sons, repentance, and he celebrates upon repentance. By the way, people say that this father was sitting on the porch and watching the sunset, longing day after day, weeping and longing day after day for the sun to return. They hype this parable with those words. But those words are not here. It doesn't say the father was moping and groping all the time and sitting on the porch, waiting, looking at the horizon, waiting for his son to return. It doesn't say anything like that. We're not saying that the father shouldn't be grieved about the loss of his son who has departed and does not long for him to return. We're not saying that. What we're saying is they increase the intensity of the Father's longing in order to make excuses for our own wayward children. That's what people do. They make excuses for our own wayward children. But that's not the context. That's not whatever is happening here. When true repentance does occur with the wayward son, the Father properly receives him back and celebrates. But what about the other son? The father did what was right, we said. The wayward son first did what was wrong, now does what is right. But this other son, who claims to have never neglected a command of the father, this other son is doing wrong. He's doing wrong the whole while. Both before the wayward son departed, while the wayward son departed, and after the wayward son returned as a repentant son. Right? This one brother, other son of the father, is wrong the whole time. So who are we supposed to follow? Not the wrong son, not the wrong brother, but the right brother to have a heart of true repentance, which this other brother did not have. And he is like the scribes, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees, who pretend to be righteous when actually they still have a stubborn heart of wickedness. That is the contrast. So who's right and who's wrong in this family? Follow the one doing right and reject the one doing wrong. These examples we see here from the words of Christ. Shall we say it again? The words of Jesus Christ. Christ. 
the true Christ of the Bible, not the false Christ and another Jesus of modern times. Not the false Christ, Matthew 23, 23, and 24, nor the other Jesus, another Jesus of Luke, or 2 Corinthians 11, 2 Corinthians 11, 3 to 4. Let's follow the true Christ and stop worshiping idols. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.